So any questions about judges? Gary and I were talking about certain things. Like, does anybody know the age of Samson? I don't either. I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> you know, that was one of the questions we had. <laughs> It may not tell us, that's right, but it may, may give some hints. So we'll have to figure that out. So, Well, as we look at the book of Ruth tonight, we have to remember that it's in the context of the book of Judges. It is happening around the same time, okay? And I don't have, I'll just leave this up here. Um, get all excited if you see something, you know, and I'm joking. Um, I don't have a PowerPoint tonight because it's been a crazy week. We've been uh, going all over the place. So um, uh, today I was supposed to be at award ceremony at 2 o'clock when I was supposed to pick up my child from the same school at 2.10. So don't tell me how that works out, but, you know. Uh, two children, two different, yeah, so um, so it's been a little crazy, but I, I don't have a PowerPoint, but this happens uh, during the time of Judges, the story, or, or the, uh, I hate to use the word story, Gary, and I were just talking about that too, um, this uh, historical uh, um, uh, narrative that happens. So, in, but it happens during a time of a moral crisis for Israel. So even during these moral crises, uh, God is looking for those faithful servants to bless. God is still out there looking for those. Um, so when you have a lot of people making wrong choices, like we don't see that in today's world, do we at all? You know, nah, not at all. Um, he's still looking for those that, that he wants to bless who are, are marching toward his, uh, his, uh, his ways. Um, so the book of Ruth is about the sovereign work of God in the lives of, of pretty much everybody. Every day, when I say everybody, I mean everyday people, you know, uh, humble people during the time of the judges. And, and, you know, God blesses his faithful family from Bethlehem in a surprising way um, in the middle of the chaos and the confusion and everything else. So the, the book of Ruth is kind of a, it's a fun literary uh, piece. It's a simple description of kind of a, a domestic, uh, rustic life. You know, it's kind of like an everyday family out there just trying to survive. And, and uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, the action centers around, of course, three different people, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, with some, you know, supporting characters, historical figures in there. And Naomi and her family are forced to flee from their home in Bethlehem because of a famine, okay? Uh, rough times going on. God is punishing the nation, going through a famine uh, because they're not following him. And this family is caught up in the middle of this. So during their stay in Moab, Naomi's husband and sons, uh, and sons died, leaving her alone with her daughter-in-laws. She has two daughter-in-laws, okay, leaving her there. And Ruth returns to Bethlehem with Naomi to start a new life. But unless someone intervenes to help these two ladies, they're going to have a rough life because there's a lots of biblical uh, or not biblical. Uh, there's lots of um, context here when it comes to the time period on how uh, men survived, how women survived, how families survived. Women were not allowed to um, own land. OK, they weren't allowed to purchase land. Uh, and we'll get into some of that, what that means uh, here in a little bit. Um, they weren't, uh, there was many things they weren't allowed to do in society. So they were kind of like the destitute of the destitute. 
So when God says, take care of the widows and orphans, he means take care of the widows and orphans because no one else is going to throw them anything. No one else is going to help them at all. And that's the position that they find themselves in. So they can expect a life of poverty and a life of loneliness. But God intervenes to help them, uh, but in a way that neither of them could have imagined happening. So there's four chapters of Ruth that are written almost like a four-act play. Uh, each chapter or scene has a clear kind of opening and concluding uh, paragraph in both, and each you know revolves around this kind of important dialogue in a, uh, in the middle of um, the you know this uh, this narrative, and the chapters are organizes uh, organized from a problem solution framework. Okay, so there's a problem presented, and then by the end of the chapter, a solution happens for that little problem but overall we see god's hand throughout the whole thing um so you know chapter one portrays uh, portrays the problem uh, in its severity and and at the conclusion of the chapter both naomi and ruth are without husband and child and together they face these uh, you know the reality of poverty in their lives and the following three tra- uh, chapters describe the, uh, like a gradual unfolding as the, uh, as the history goes of the solution to the problems. And the book kind of builds up to dramatic uh, climax, if you will, which has a surprise ending. Uh, and there's a couple of surprise endings. So it's kind of, you know, outline-wise, uh, you have the introduction, then you have the return to Bethlehem, then you have Ruth encounters Boaz. Then you have Ruth visiting the threshing floor. Then you have Boaz, you know, being uh, being the redeemer and marries Ruth. And at the very end, they throw in the genealogy, uh, which is really important uh, and really cool. So, um, well, let's jump into it. You know, the book is named for Ruth, but really Naomi is is r- what it should be named. Uh, and the reason why it's named Ruth is because she is in the line of Christ. And that's one of the surprise endings that I just gave up, you know. But uh, hopefully you all know the story. But, uh, but it's named Ruth uh, for that reason. But really, Naomi is the, the central character almost throughout it all. And the reversal of her life's sad circumstances and where she finds her place. The events of chapter 1 take place in Moab. And Moab is not the area that the Jews should be living in. And, and really, it's, it's technically on the road home from Moab, not necessarily in Moab, but Moab's where, the, uh, where uh, her husband and then her two uh, sons pass away. And the rest of the scene is set in Bethlehem and its vicinity. So in chapter one, as Naomi and Ruth are traveling back to Bethlehem, so you have the opening paragraph with verses one through five, and it lists all the, you know, in a sense, the cast of characters, uh, the way it's written and the places in the historical and geographical context. And unlike the characters in other historical books, the main characters here are not are not important judges. They're not kings. They're not prophets. They're not really people of any notoriety whatsoever. They're just people. They're like you or I. They have no huge lineage. They have nothing going for them. They're just everyday people. Okay? And I think this story is really important because of that. Elimelech, uh, which is uh, 
Uh, her husband and his family are just average Israelites negotiating their way through life, you know, just on a day-by-day basis. So Naomi's name is probably uh, an abbreviation of God is my delight or pleasantness, okay, or being pleasant. So that was her personality. She was just a bubbly personality. God's just they're completely for me, you know, and that was, you know, oftentimes uh, people kind of grew into their names in, in, uh, in Old Testament times and New Testament times. Uh, people were named for a reason and their names kind of dictated their personality in many ways. Um, so, you know, but, but at this point in her life, it's no longer pleasant. You know, it's no longer God is my delight. It's why God, why am I going through this? Why is this happening? And her life changed forever, you know, in a good decade, you know, during this decade in which famine forced their family to to move to Moab to begin with. And after her husband, Elimelech, died, her two sons married Moabite uh, Moabite women. and, And she's thinking, well, at least they're married. Okay. now, again, are they supposed to be marrying Moabite women? No, not at all. But they do. And then through a series of unexplained accidents or tragedies, the two sons die. And in short order, the author has painted a dark picture for us, right? I mean, this is terrible. I mean, we would, if we had a friend that went through this, we would be like, man, I feel, I'm so sorry for you. Yeah, I feel so bad. You know, what can we do maybe or whatever, you know, you're sitting there going and in the back of your mind, because we're all this way, right? I'll be honest. We're all this way. We're sitting there going, Glad I'm not in their shoes, right? I mean, we're saying that in our back of minds. We may not say that out loud in front of them or something like that, but we're going, wow, you know, oh, whoo, you know. But this dark picture, this woman far from home is without husband. She's without children. And now what does that mean? She has nobody to take care of her as she gets older. Because in that society, you had lots of children if you could. And the reason why you had lots of children was because your children took care of you. You didn't have retirement. You didn't have Social Security. You didn't have 401k. You didn't have these other things that that we might have today. But they didn't have them at all back then. And children took care of them unless the people took care of them. And the church stepped up to take care of them. So this is what's going on. She has passed her childbearing years. And that's important for the story. She's, you know, she's facing the, the most extreme and desperate circumstances possible for a woman in ancient Israel. Um, so she's lost every source of security and comfort, and she's prepared to return to Bethlehem to this life of loneliness and despair. She was going back to where her family's land is. Now, in Israel, God designed it. He goes, okay. You get this plot of land. This is your land forever in your family. You can never sell that land. Okay? You can rent it out. You can lease it. But ever so many years, guess what? That land gets returned. Every, I think it's every jubilee, every 50 years, the land would be returned. And there's another thing in there every seven years I think debt is forgiven or something like that. But every 50 years, the land was returned to the, to the rightful family if other people were renting it. 
And then uh, we'll talk about Kinsman Redeemer. That comes into it uh, a little later, and we'll talk about that. But, the, you know, she's returning to that area which her family has the land, but she no longer has the land. It's been rented out, and apparently she's not getting the money from the rent or something. It doesn't tell us, okay? So Naomi realized that... that uh, the sacrifice involved for her two daughter, daughters-in-laws as they're walking on the road, she's realizing if my two daughter-in-laws come back to Israel, one, they're not Jewish. So they're not going to find a good Jewish man to, to marry, right? Because they're Moabites. So she's just going, she releases them and says, okay, uh, you know, you guys can go back if you want. And of course, one daughter does a uh, daughter-in-law does the other one basically says no i'm committed to you she has this unsurpassing love uh, for naomi and she refused she chose not to become uh, uh she she chose not to become a wife again but to remain a daughter in a sense because her chances again of getting married are nil <laughs> in many ways but her expression of devotion to naomi and a home homeland also, you know, kind of reflects the commitment of life itself. Because even in death, Ruth was not ready to abandon Naomi. And all the death that happened, she was like, no, I'm here with you. I don't care. We're going to go through this together. So on their return to Bethlehem, Naomi was, you know, hardly recognized due to years of hardship. And, and she no longer had the bubbly personality. Life had beat her down. And now, as many of you know, and as we've studied this, or you might have studied it in the past, uh, you know, her, her life is no longer pleasant. Now it's bitter. And you know what it's like when you run into a bitter person, don't you? It's not, a, it's not fun at all, is it? When, when you have that person that's just bitter. Uh, it causes lots of issues. So this kind of illustrates the contrast between her former life and her present circumstance. And by her side stands this faithful woman who is a Moabitess, and her name is Ruth. And it gives no hint that ultimately Ruth may provide the answer to Naomi's plight. Okay, so that's where it ends. So it starts out, the story starts out in chapter one. And the problem is she's traveling back home. She has no hope. At the end, where does her hope come from? Naomi going, I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere, okay? I'm here with you. So that provides a little bit of hope. So then in chapter 2, we end up what's called gleaning in the field. Now, does anybody know what gleaning is? Yeah. Yeah. Right. They would leave a certain percentage around the edges of the crops and stuff. So if they're picking grapes, they would leave kind of grapes along the edge. And then whoever couldn't afford grapes, whoever couldn't afford uh, food for their family would go along and they would be allowed to pick those grapes or the wheat harvest or whatever they're, they're planting. Uh, at this point, this was, uh, uh, I think, oats or um, barley. I think it was barley. If my memory's correct, it could be faulty. Um, but uh, it's left for them to do that. I kind of wish we would do this today, though sometimes 
it, we, we see it in this. A lot of the people who pick our um, fruits in the fields, the owners allow them to take a little bit with them. Because, you know, are the people out in the fields making $120,000? They're making $60,000. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you can keep going down and down and down. So the owners are, are, are nice enough to allow them to take some of those, uh, uh, you know, home and stuff. And ever so often we have a couple of people will bring a few boxes and, because they're out, you know, ever so often they'll go out and pick and, and, and stuff and they'll bring a little extra up to church and stuff. So we kind of see that a little bit today. And that's what gleaning means, a certain percentage. And this was actually written into uh, the law that the, that the Jewish people were supposed to allow certain amount and certain amount of people to come out and glean uh, to be able to uh, eat and so forth. So the second chapter opens with an important piece of information for the rest of the story in verse 1. Naomi had an in-law named Boaz. She was related to this Boaz um, in a certain way, who was a man of considerable wealth, and he was also very respected within the community. So Ruth, you know, she, she volunteers to go out to glean, saying, okay, well, we need some food. I'll go out. I'll find a field. Naomi's basically, you know, hunkered down at home with a blanket over her head going, I don't want to even get out of bed. And Ruth says, don't worry, Mom, I'll go take care of it. And Ruth takes off and does that to collect what she could. And, uh, and the, the law is somewhere around Leviticus. I have it in my notes here, 19 and Leviticus 23 that talk about uh, the sheaves uh, being, uh, they, would even, uh, they would even bundle some of it up and leave it on the side. Um, so, so you didn't even have to pick. But we, we see later in Ruth, Ruth was out there working her tail off. Yeah, she doesn't necessarily just take a little. She's out there working hard uh, as she's trying to take care of it. So verse 3 makes it clear that Ruth was unaware that the field that she happened to be on that she chanced upon was a field that Boaz owned, and he happened to be there that day, uh, which is really cool. We see God at work behind the scenes of everyday life people. You know, we think of God working with kings. We think, of, oh, I wish I was Paul. I wish I was David. I wish I was John. I wish I had this. I wish I was that. And God's going, no, I made you who you are, and I'm just going to still work in your life. Not everybody's a Paul, right? Yeah, that, that wouldn't work. Not everybody's the, you know, John. Not everybody's King David. I mean, what would a kingdom look like if everybody was King David, you know? So, so God works with everyone where they are at. So, uh, and we see this uh, in this story. So when Boaz came from the city to inspect the, his laborers and see what was going on, he noticed this young woman out there gleaning in the field, and he took action to provide safety for her. Now, why would he have to do that? Well, like every society, you have people who take advantage of those on a low, low man, low woman on the totem pole, right? So he's like, guys, I want you to watch out for her. Take care of her. You know, and he found out who she was. He kind of did his due diligence of, of figuring out who she is and why she's out there. And he says, she's doing good things. Take care of her. And this, I, you know, this act of kindness is really the first cheerful thing in this book at all. 
I mean, after Ruth's whirlwind, you know, poverty and widowhood and losing a husband. And I mean, this kind of was a turning point for her life. So she returns home and Naomi's just like, she's pleasantly surprised. And you see this pleasantness almost come out of Naomi again. Her, her name is, you know, supposed to be pleasant, you know, so that bubbly personality comes out. I mean, there's an unexpected bounty. I mean, she comes home with a lot more than what uh, she would have because Boaz took care of her. Okay, Boaz instructed his men to give her more. Um, And then, you know, then all of a sudden she learns that Boaz was responsible and she breaks out in praise of Yahweh. This is probably the first time that she's spoken to God in a long time. I was at the hospital uh, today doing some rounds and talking with some people up there. And I uh, ran across this gentleman. And as I was talking to him, he was telling me, I haven't talked to God for years. And the, but he's telling me, but I've done godly things. I've worked, you know, I try to live for God and so forth. But I've, ne- you know, I don't connect with God at all. And I, I'm just like, uh, you know, we, were, we started talking about how it's, it's about a relationship, not about following the rules. Because he was about following, the way he was talking was all about following the rules. And I, you know, and I was talking with him for a little bit, just talking about it. It's, it's about a relationship, not about rule following. And, you know, we, we, I won't go into all the little things, but, but it's interesting how when we finally do meet God, we break out in praise when our focus is, uh, you know, on him instead of ourselves. He's a, he's a moving force behind everything in the story. So Boaz is what we call a kinsman redeemer, a goel, as they would say in the Hebrew. In Israelite society, all property, again, we talked about property, all property belonged to God, okay? And then God parceled it out to the people. So, uh, you know, it's not possible to legally, uh, you know, to, to purchase a, another family's land, as, as we talked about earlier. So in hard times, you could sell it, you could lease it to someone else. And then a kinsman redeemer was responsible for redeeming the property and restoring it to the original family owner. So somebody who was related had the responsibility to go and get it back to, for the family after a period of time. Uh, Naomi may have already had thoughts like, hey, Boaz, he could be the answer to our problems, but we don't know that. But it says in verse 20 of chapter 2, the Lord has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. So she's kind of going, I was dead and God is showing kindness to me. And you've been living, you've been out there, and God is showing kindness to you. So it's this idea of of God is not done with us yet. So then we hit chapter 3. And, you know, so far the story is about ordinary people moving in and out of of the complexities of life and just all that's happening and and so forth. But Boaz, the, the local farmer, and then you have the bereaved Naomi and the daughter in law who've recently returned from Moab. And all these characters believe and behave in a manner that we should emulate, in a, in a way that we should copy, because they're acting in godly ways. But as you're reading the story, 
Okay, we we all know Ruth is great, and and the you know every every women's uh, group needs to stu- you know study the book of Ruth, right? You know, because I guess women can only study the book of Ruth or something like that. And the book of Esther, I found out. You know, um, not really, but that's you know a lot of a lot of ministries kind of treat it like that. You know. Uh, I need to see a men's group study the book of Ruth. You know what I mean? Because you have some, you have Boaz who just is a righteous man and acts righteously. He just laughed at the appropriate timing and he doesn't even know. Oh, man. Um, but as you're reading the story for the first time, and if you've never read it, never heard it, you're thinking at this point, Will these people continue to act righteously? Will they continue to follow God or will they try to skip a few steps along the way? Okay, so this chapter contains um, some ancient customs that are kind of odd to us. Um, Their full significance isn't known. um, Where Ruth goes to the threshing floor and then uncovers the blanket of his feet and then she lays down there. Um, we don't quite, it's not explained to us totally, okay, uh, what's going on when it comes to that. But uh, what is clear is Boaz understood Ruth's surprising actions as a, as a marriage proposal, saying she is available for marriage, okay. But, um, and that, that he could function as a, as a kinsman redeemer in that, uh, in that sense, um, so she was saying that, but the, the, the chapter gradually kind of gl- you know, grows in the suspense and the anticipation. And Ruth's request was an honorable one and didn't, uh, didn't mean anything bad, okay? Um, unfortunately, down at the threshing floors, again, you had a lot of things that would go on, right? Because people are people, and no matter where you go, you're going to have... He has his headphones on, so I can say, you know, you're going to have prostitutes around. You're going to have different things along these lines. And those are one of the places you're not around. um, This is not appropriate time to laugh. Um, (laughs) For those online, my son's got his headphones on as I'm talking. So he's just laughing away uh, over there. Um, But, you know, a lot of stuff uh, would happen. You're away from family. You're away from from those things. It's almost like if we were to go to, to Vegas and all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm in Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, as the commercial says. Or you're on a business trip or you're out of whatever, you know, you're out of your 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 people that kind of watch you. Things can happen. So this is a situation that she's in. Things could happen, but it doesn't mean they do. So um, all this is soon resolved. Boaz behaved not only um, in, in a righteous way, but decisively and honorably, okay? He could have basically said, hey, okay, sounds good to me. Let's just make this happen right now. But he doesn't. Uh, he assumed that, uh, at one point, he assumed that she would have preferred a younger man, and, uh, uh, but she didn't. She came to him. Uh, he, was, he was honored by this and surprised by it. And Ruth also acted morally. And this is really cool. You have people making wise choices so she consistently given a higher priority to her family obligations we see this over and over she was about taking care of naomi okay she wasn't about herself if she was about herself what would happen she would have been gone 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 back to the moabite city you know to moab 
and she would have stayed there. But she's consistently uh, given this obligation to uh, Naomi. So now we throw a twist into the story, okay? Boaz informed Ruth about a different kinsman redeemer who was a closer relative. So what happened was the closest relative has top priority. And then if that person doesn't want to redeem, doesn't want to get the land back, okay, for the family and take it over and work it for her and all those things, then the next relative could. And then the next relative, you see what I'm saying? It kind of goes down the line. And he could have just on the sly said, okay, hey, let's hurry up and get married. Let's get this done before the other kinsman redeemer uh, even hears about it because I like your family land. Da, da, da. He could have manipulated here, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't force anything. Uh, he knows that this could delay the wedding. Um, so uh, he didn't consider marrying Ruth without giving preference for the other kinsman redeemer. So that kind of adds a twist here at the very end of chapter three. Then we hit chapter four. So we have the events at the threshing floor in, in chapter 3 that took place in the middle of the night, okay? Uh, in darkness and seclusion. But the events of chapter 4 take place in, in the most public arena possible. And this, and I'll do some pictures next week of the city gates. And it's, it's really cool. The city gates is basically the county courthouse for us, right? Uh, that's where you go get your marriage certificate. That's where you take it back. That's where if there's a court issue, you go to the court. Um, you know, all those things happen around that legally for us. Well, back then, everything happened at the city gate. Your leaders of the city would go out there and sit at the city gate, and they would take care of and make decisions. They would make judgments and all this kind of stuff. And the city gate, <coughs> what's interesting is, they're very big, thick gates coming into a city. And you would go in and you would go about 15 feet this way and you would hit a brick wall that's very thick and very high. And then you would have to go that way for about 15 feet. And then what do you run into? Brick a brick wall. It's like a maze, okay? And every, every little place had another little alcove and that's where all the city administration would happen. Basically, it was built like that, the maze-wise. That way, somebody coming in, an invading army, couldn't get in quickly into the major city and so forth that was surrounded by the wall and all that. And we have some uh, cool pictures of uh, the, the city where Abraham came into the land of Israel and the gate that he would have gone through and then the little kind of trail that he would have gone. They've dug that all up. It's from the time of Abram. Um, so that's kind of cool. So I, get, I have some of those pictures that I'll show you next week. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it, not next week. And so it's such a habit to say that. Um, it'll be after we get back from the holidays because next week I'll be packing at this point, probably pulling my hair out. Uh, well, at least checking my list two or three times. Checking yes, checking it twice. So um, <laughs> luckily I have a, yeah, I keep lists. I got like a hundred lists in my phone. I'm a list person, so it's a checklist. I use it over and over. Yeah. No, I'm not a paper. Yeah. My wife is a paper, but the problem is she loses the paper. So 
then she has to remake the list, you know. So anyway, so it'll be when we get back, we'll show those, those pictures of the gate system. But the city gate, um, this is where your assemblies happen. This is where, you, you know, the, the proper place for conducting any legal business would happen, to, uh, happen. And it always happened during the midday when the sun was out. They would work in the morning take care of business in the afternoon or they go take a siesta and then they would come back and kind of work at night why cooler okay they would take that that um, midday kind of break but it was uh everybody it was out in the open for everybody to see and we see that all the problems in chapter one are resolved at this point and we learn here for the first time the 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 piece of the uh, the land belonging to Naomi and again we talked about that couldn't go anywhere else it had to stay in the family and because it was you know Naomi's pro uh, poverty the lamb would be kind of sold or leased out but a kinsman must redeem it so the property wasn't lost to the family so an unnamed kinsman declared his intention to redeem it when he found out oh wait oh this is her land well yeah I I'll I'll get it back into our family. I'm related. I'll get it back to our family. You know, so, so this is what was happening. And, uh, uh, you know, Boaz came in and said, well, wait, 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 wait. There's a condition on this transaction. If you do this, you're, you don't have to marry Naomi, she, you know, but Ruth. You have to take Ruth as your wife. Now, this affects his legacy. This affects his children. Naomi, no big deal. I'll take the land. I'll take Naomi. I'll take care of it. Then as my family, you know, because the, the, uh, he's sitting there going, well, then when I pass away, it all gets handed down to my children. But if I marry Ruth, all of a sudden I introduce probably new kids because she's of childbearing age. And then all of a sudden it causes family issues, right? Now, who wants more family issues? <laughs> yeah you know no one wants more family issues we have enough right you know um so he basically backs out of that going uh, yeah, uh i don't think so which allowed boaz to step in to that area um so uh, it clears the way for boaz to, to and ruth to actually marry so in one brief verse in chapter 4 verse 13 Every problem in chapter one meets a solution. Ruth marries. Yahweh grants immediate conception and a son is born. But after this verse, both Boaz and Ruth kind of leave the center stage. And the story comes about Naomi again. She kind of comes out to the forefront. She takes into the arms. Once this baby is born, she takes you know, the baby into her arms as if she is the mother, which she's grandma, so, I mean, who's going to fuss with that, right? But she takes it, and uh, the, the author kind of takes us from where Naomi was bereaved because her two sons passed away to this new joy, this new pleasantness, because there's new life introduced here, the son of Boaz and Ruth. So we kind of arrive at this happy conclusion and every need of chapter one has been met. Um, but before the genealogy, the story ends with this, this uh, oh, the, the way the sentence is structured. It's a very concise sentence. 
with a surprise ending. Naomi's friends named the child Obed, which was the father of Jesse, which is the father of David. And this is really cool because a son born in these unlikely circumstances to this foreign woman, right? Because again, she's not even Jewish, became the grandfather of Israel's greatest king. That's just amazing. Of course, Matthew didn't fail to see the, the, the significance of that and in the lineage of the Messiah in Matthew 1, 5. But the Lord's purpose was accomplished through their lives of, of ordinary individuals, okay? Not esteemed individuals, not, not worthy individuals as, you know, our world looks at worthy people, not people who had a ton of money and so forth, but uh, people who their lives were committed to God, and they went through the ups and downs of life. Which is kind of interesting that this account with this amazing wedding and this miracle baby is really about the sovereignty of God. Because, again, the, the book is named Ruth, but it's Naomi who states the problem that's addressed in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. And it's her that overshadows her daughter-in-law's uh, her daughter-in-law in the, in the conclusion of the book. But in another sense, neither of them are the central character. Throughout the whole narrative, it is God who watches over Naomi and Ruth and Boaz to accomplish what is best for them in accordance with God's purposes. See what I'm saying? The book is first and foremost about God and his faithful dealings in the lives of his people. And the sovereignty of God and his his plan is worked out through the faithfulness of the main characters. Um, And Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz provide really a striking contrast with the other events of the day that we studied last week, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes, right? I mean, there's so many different things that could have happened here if these three people did right in their own eyes. If they would have made decisions that were based on them and not on how God wanted them to live, the story would have been completely different. And, uh, you know, it even uh, uh, the opening words, uh, you know, in the days of the judges ruled, uh, highlight the differences between the faithful lives of the you know the simple people compared to the sordid affairs of the characters in the book of Judges. So during a period when when people did what was right in their own eyes, there was these three who did right in the eyes of God. So again, it's through their faithfulness to God and their faithfulness to one another that God provides the Messiah to the world. I mean, this is really cool. Think about it. Through a non-Jewish person and a Jewish person, God provides the Messiah to the world through the lineage. See, I mean, the, the Jews have missed the whole point that God was saying, I want you to represent me to the world. But the Jews took it as, well, God is blessing us. Let me pat myself on the back. God's blessing me. God's blessing the Jews. And they missed the whole point of God's blessing you because he wants you to take God to the whole world. And he does accomplish this 
through Jesus. And his plan all along was this. And he starts, I mean, I want to say he starts right here. I mean, his plan was already going. Okay, don't get me wrong. But right here is a, a significant milestone because this illustrates the benefits of God's covenant and not limiting any boundaries, um, national boundaries, racial boundaries, or gender boundaries. Ruth is consistently referred to as a Moabitess. Uh, in other words, a woman from the land of Moab, you know, constantly refer to that because that ethnicity is important for God's picture. Uh, it's not forgotten in the book, which teaches us that even a Moabite woman can live a covenant with Yahweh and benefit from the faithful relationship with him. That no matter who we are, where we come from, we can benefit from that relationship with God. And that's the book of Ruth. That's the whole point of Ruth. Living righteously and God blessing you. Living righteously and God blessing you. Because what's really cool is these people are just living life. They're like you and I. We're just living life. Okay? We're nobody special. In, in the grand, I mean, I know that, that we, all teachers tell the kids, oh, you're special, you know, you're special. Guess what? We're all just normal people, right? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been called normal in forever. <laughs> oh, you know, but it, it's just, it's about making wise choices that go, always go toward the Lord. And you make that choice because of your faithfulness to God. So, uh, any questions on the book of Ruth? Yes. So I know they're working at making farming big there again. Mm -hmm. Are they still gleaning? Are they alive? I don't know if they're modern gleaning. Since they still follow the old. I will look that up and I will look up Samson's thing uh, hopefully tomorrow. And I'll send out a, a note on this to answer those two questions. Modern gleaning. Which is kind of funny because the Jews, there's many Jews that still believe that the Old Testament is mm -hmm. intact. That they're still living in the time of the Old Testament. They're supposed to be following those rules. Yeah. Yet they can't follow the rule because they don't have the temple, right? Because they can't make sacrifices. So they can't ultimately get right with God, yet they're still supposed to still follow the rules. So I don't know if those Jews are following this, because you have a lot of people who say, yeah, I'm a Jew, but they are secular Jews. They're Jew through blood, and it has no, uh, no belief in God whatsoever. It's only through blood that they're Jewish. And that's what they hold on to because uh, of the safety net that that is providing, because the world is against them. Just like, uh, you know, I think it's it's funny. I mean, and we I think we've talked about this enough and we understand this. The world's against Christians also. But the world is really, really against the Jews. I mean, the, even some of the statements that come out today in America about certain things. I think um, some uh, historical place that had something to do with uh, Anna, uh, not Anne, the one in World War Two that hid in the wall. Anne Frank, thank you, Anne Frank. Some memorial for her was just like, I had a whole bunch of stuff spray painted all over it and some Jewish hatred stuff put on. I mean, the world just really hates Jews. 
I mean, they tolerate Christians, but they hate the Jews. And so they kind of protect each other in that so sense. Been yeah. Hit by vandalism. Yeah. So, yep. I mean, people say stuff all the time like, well, you know, let's finish what Hitler started, you know, and stuff like that. And you're like going, though, I think it's interesting on a whole different side note here. Um, <laughs> you know how they used to say no Jew allow, allowed, but it was in German and they would paint it on the windows back in the 40s. So now I'm not joking on some of those same windows, same places they have no unvaccinated allowed. So, you know, so the first two words are changed, but the last word is still on there. And I'm thinking, wait, this is Germany. Do you not remember your history from the 40s? You know, I mean, yeah, I'm not trying to say one way or the other on the vaccine. I'm just saying that that is just amazing to me. Uh, that uh, they're allowing uh, stuff like that to happen. So we'll see what happens. Uh, how do we get off on that? So I don't know. Uh, any other questions on the book of Ruth? Just back to the Jewish. How the Jews, I mean, before Christ, they waited hundreds of years for Messiah. Mm-hmm. They didn't want him because he wasn't an earthly king. That more of just of that. But now they've gone 2,000 years and they're still looking. Still looking for the Messiah. Um, there's many, there's many that believe they just missed him or that God changed his mind because again, they're not faithful to the scriptures. Yeah. So, yeah. Are they still looking for an earthly king, earthly Messiah? I, I don't know. There's so many different religions probably are, but not the secular. Yeah. What? There's so many different sects of Hasidic Jews, like they're mm-hmm. Orthodox, conservative, and then you got like your secular. Yeah, I mean like Christians. It's so diverse. Yeah, yeah, just like Christianity, you have those that are all. Today at lunch, I was uh, meeting with the pastors, and uh, we were talking about different things, and you know, Southern Baptist. I mean, Southern Baptists versus others. You know, I mean, there's different things and different. You know. In the same way, it's the Jewish. I mean, the Jews, you know, have the circle hair coming down, the Hasidic Jews and all that. Um, you know, they're more inclined to believe that the Messiah hasn't come yet. Uh, many of the other Jews either say, well, he came, we missed him, or God's not going to send him, or we don't really care. You know, so, yeah. I'll give you an example. Um, this is a, a, a semi-friend of mine, uh, play golf with, known him now, uh, 10 years or so. Anyway, uh, I don't know how the conversation started with a crew of, of our guys, but anyway, he, uh, he came out and said uh, that he believes in God. And then, and then, I don't know what happened, but then sometime later he came up to me and said, who's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John? <laughs> well, that shows you how much of, how much of a God believer he is. Mm-hmm. Not even any knowledge at all about. Right. I mean, he, he knows nothing. Mm-hmm. Probably never been to church ever in his life. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'm saying that for Christians. Uh, well, Christians. Yeah, yeah, because our nation, 70% of the people call themselves Christian, which is not reality. Could you imagine how drastically different our nation would look like if 70% were actual faithful followers. I, oh, man. Yeah. If if 70% of our country actually was faithful followers of Christ, how different this country would 
would be, how different this world would be, you know. So say they're Christians, you know, but mm-hmm. that's just because their grandfather went to church one time and so or whatever, you know, they. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this, you know, I was just talking with Brandon about this. Um, he's 10 years old and he wanted a copy of early church. I mean, early, not church, early uh, founding fathers writings and the Constitution. He just wanted to read it, you know. So we found one and, and got him and he's. He's reading it, and we were talking about how many of the early father, or church fathers were Christians, but that doesn't mean our nation was Christian. There was many of the early church, uh, I say church, okay, early founding fathers of, of our nation that were not Christian, but had morals that were written into the Constitution and so forth that followed many of those same principles because there was a morality, you know, morality gets worse and worse. And it ebbs and flows between generations and stuff like that, as we see in the Bible. Uh, we, we see that even in the, the book of Judges, how the cycle would, would happen and all that, where they would repent and, you know, a generation would come back to God. And when that judge died, then, the, you know, they would go off and do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, the same thing with our generations, uh, different generations and so forth. But, uh, yeah, it's... If man, if Christians would just really, if the church itself would just love each other, it would, <laughs> our world would look a, a lot different. So, yeah. Anything else? Okay. Well, let's pray and eat some dessert for those that are here. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw another shot out there. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the book of Ruth. We thank you that everyday normal people uh, who follow you are, are being blessed. And we, we take that as an encouragement for our lives, that if we follow you, that uh, you will watch over us. You will take care of us. And uh, uh, through the good and through the bad and through the ugly and through the wonderful, Lord, uh, we, we pray that we follow you. Uh, and I pray that the rest of this week as we get into the holiday season that we look to you every day and that, uh, that we become committed followers, not just believers, but committed followers uh, in the ways that you want us to. In your loving name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful evening and enjoy some dessert.